Hello, everyone. Tonight we have this, I think the Buddha would say, this great boon of being able to reflect together on impermanence. And, uh, of course, we, in some ways, we always think we're doing that. You know, we're aware of impermanence. But uh, the real essence of this work, of this practice, is to go from considering impermanence on a superficial level of thought and philosophy and to a more immediate, direct experience. So it's really about integrating or including and even maybe better valuing the reality of our direct experiencing more than the thoughts that we have about it. And uh, one of the things that usually brings a lot of laughs when you hear some of our more respected elders, teachers, talk about how um, dismal and depressing it is to be in crowds, go to con- Buddhist conventions or you know programs where people are talking and know quite a bit about impermanence or the different Buddhist concepts, but you know, in a sense, are a million miles away from a more immediate investigation of impermanence. And as I suggested in the guided sit, the great thing about these different contemplations that are encouraged in Buddhist practice, like contemplating impermanence, contemplating the unsatisfying nature of experience, contemplating the uh, impersonal nature of experience. So there are many others contemplating the reality of letting go or the reality of non-clinging. But the, the interesting thing about any of these important contemplations are just, you know, the availability of loving kindness is a contemplation, is that it doesn't really matter our life situation or the particular experience that's arising for us right now because... What we're contemplating is what we call Dhamma, the way it is. And so that, the way that it is, any experience, if, it, if, if we're contemplating the underlying nature, well, any experience will reveal the underlying nature. It isn't like the underlying nature of experience is only there in certain experiences. Right? By definition, of course, it's everywhere, always. So we never have to feel like this isn't the right time or... I'm not really ready for this. or Because that thought itself could be seen, oh, that's impermanent. That's something that is coming and going. And now there's, there's another thought, you know, like, what was that thought that I just had? Well, I, 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 was, I was observing, and while thoughts come and go, and sensations come and go, and, you know, the breath comes and goes... The consistency is that there are always thoughts. If you go up to a category, there are always thoughts. There are always sensations. So that makes you think there's a sense of permanence. And there's always something observing. You know, there's always that awareness, it, you know, that you can count on. Mm-hmm. So is that that, a... that, oh, there's, there's some permanency here. Yeah. And then the key is to continue the investigation like to get interested in it, because the Buddha didn't say there isn't permanency. 
you know, in terms of this reflection, but just asking the question, is form constant or inconstant? Is the mind... So the, one of the things that you brought up is, is consciousness constant or inconstant? You know, it's a really interesting contemplation. Because it does seem like there's always knowing. But when we really look at knowing, it's like really hard to see knowing apart from what the object that's being known, right? You know, whenever there, whenever there's a sense, an intuitive sense that there's consciousness, it's always involving consciousness knowing an object. And that object is not the same, it's always changing. So I, I get what you're saying that there is always this knowing going on. But the, the knowing is arising with the objects that are being known. It's not really distinct. It doesn't sort of stand out like, uh, as if, you know, like there's a big floodlight behind me shining out and it allows me to see things. You know, and it, it's not like I can look back. I know that there's that light because I see the reflection of you, I see the reflection of the wall. So I know that there are, there's light illuminating or consciousness illuminating. But I can't actually see that constancy. I mean, I'm suggesting that. I mean, let's investigate. And remember, the this investigation isn't about defining the ultimate nature of reality. It's reflecting on an experience on our experiences in a way that causes clinging to cease. So basically. The Buddha says, if you contemplate the nature of reality in a very continuous, subtle way, uh, and the subtlety is more about the continuity, like the unbrokenness, the not, not being distracted in the contemplation. So if we were contemplating the nature of our mind-body experience, what will arise naturally without... Mark deciding to, what will arise naturally is non-clinging. Because clinging and the nature of reality don't really fit together. Clinging makes sense from the overlay the, the thinking mind gives to reality. Then it makes sense. Clinging makes sense. Attachment makes sense. So when we, the more we contemplate consciousness or, even though I totally get what you're saying that there are elements in our experience, like another thing that can seem constant is just sort of the background of stress. Even very subtle sensation, like some of the more distinct sensations tend to come and go. But there can be almost like a layer of vibration that doesn't seem to come and go. But remember, we don't want to give up on the contemplation. This is the why it's so important to be continuous, because a lot of what seems constant is because there's a continuity to experience. It's like, like for example, what your point about consciousness. Because in this moment I knew this, and in that moment I knew this, and then the next moment I knew something else. There seems to be this thread of continuity, like there's always something being known. And the Buddha says this, it's like, the reason impermanence isn't seen is because of continuity. Things are unfolding conditionally. So, there seems to be a relationship, you know, between this moment and then this moment and then this moment, and it masquerades the underlying inconstancy of experience. So we have to be 
Like we have to recognize the conditional unfolding, like how there seems to be this consistency, um, but not and but not give up on the contemplation. Like really look at that, because yeah, because of what I said. Janet, did you? <laughs> I think I could have asked this question last class, but the thing that frustrates me about this contemplation is I feel like. I can't see impermanence unless I sort of like pin down part of the experience in order with my attention in order to look at it. And by virtue of doing that, it's I'm holding I am holding experience to this. How long can you hold it though? Well, I mean it I can't it's like I can't see experience unless I'm sort of like holding it in one spot, I don't know, five minutes or something. I guess that's... Yeah, so... Remember that, you know, this is maybe a good time to talk about samadhi or this balance of attention because I think, uh, like one of the things I've noticed in my practice is when effort is off, like, not, not that I'm not making effort, but that it involves too much of a sense of ego or willpower or striving. Um, it's like it can create the appearance of constancy. And so we want to have a, like, contemplation, because we're contemplating the truth, and the truth is already here, like the, the reality is already here, we don't have to go anywhere. So the particular kind of effort is very subtle. You know, it's just, it's just about being interested we don't have to pin anything down because whatever this is, it is already expressing the underlying nature of things. So it's really about, yeah, the, the contemplation is very light. And so it's more about an interest and a not forgetting. And uh, the trouble is we tend to hold things too tightly. And see, that usually involves a thought about what we're doing. And concepts have, have the appearance of constancy. Because I can say Jana, Jana said that, Jana said that, Jana said that. And that seems like there's some, you know, real permanency, real entity, real constancy in my experience of dealing with this comment that Jana made. So the, the, but that, that concept is really, uh, is really diluting in the investigation of impermanence. So just the idea that I'm somebody paying my attention on this phenomena in order to see whether there's a, it's impermanent or not, it's too heavy. It's too much involved in all these constructions, which then masks the underlying reality. This is why it tends to arise in, um, in kind of unexpected moments. Some of you probably have heard Kamala, I know she's giving this talk recently. Somebody, did she give a talk on impermanence at the last retreat? Yeah. Did she? Did she talk about her experience seeing the flower? Yeah. Yeah, that's a talk she gives a lot. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like she was trying to, to see impermanence. It was just the mind was relaxed and steady. The attention was relaxed and steady. And then the reality of that experience just arose in the mind. And that's, and that's how we realize impermanence. It's like I have examples of just a particular place doing walking meditation at IMS. 
and uh, some of you have heard me say this, but just a very simple but profound and subtle experience of, you know, uh, it was fall in New England, so a lot of different colors of leaves on the ground, and just walking back and forth, and just noticing, so visual, I was mindful of the visual form of, you know, seeing, seeing, I wasn't labeling, but just that was the activity of awareness, of knowing, and, uh, you know, when I when the mind is in a conceptual mode, then it's like, well, yeah, I'm seeing leaves. And it seems like there's some constancy to that, because the moment of seeing leaves followed by the next moment of seeing leaves, even though it's different, you know, and intellectually we understand it's different, doesn't stand out as being inconstant, because what seems so constant is that there's me seeing leaves. And that just trumps the reality of this moment of seeing leaves is different than this moment of seeing leaves. So I just would notice, you know, when my mind was relaxed and I wasn't trying to practice, the mind was just mindful naturally, you know, with some continuity, naturally, effortlessly even. I would just notice, it would just arise in the mind without trying to have an insight that this moment and the next moment, they were two different realities. And even though there was a continuity, like this moment of reality was related to the next moment of reality, but they were literally two realities. And it's like, that's incomprehensible for the conceptual mind. Because the conceptual mind is really wrapped up with continuity. It's just, that's like the main story we're telling ourselves. All the stories are about explaining continuity, you know, creating a story of continuity. That's the ultimate story that we tell ourselves, is how everything... And, you know, there is this... It's The story is coming out of karma, the, the sort of conditional unfolding of cause and effect. But that's, like I said, that, that masks the underlying truth of impermanence, that... There is a radical, ephemeral, insubstantial quality to our experiences, experiencing, because in order for this moment to be what it is, it means everything past has had to cease. And then this is not, there is nothing in the future that will be this. So whatever this is, so there's a, and that, that reality isn't philosophical. It's something that is experienceable when the mind isn't uh, confused by continuity. And then basically uh, thinking or uh, conceptualizing around the experience of continuity. And we're not, like, I'm not saying that there isn't continuity. So there are two things. There's this radical impermanence and there's a Continuity or conditional unfolding where this moment is conditioning the next moment. So the moments, the radical impermanence is related moment by moment by moment. Should I go on? <laughs> I was going to read a little bit. I forget if I read this, but this is, uh, you know, what I thought would be a nice theme for tonight, and uh, feel free to interrupt when you have thoughts or questions, but what I thought would be a nice theme for tonight, for tonight, because, you know, 
um, impermanence can, from a conditioned or relative point of view, of being a being that is really uh, addicted to continuity and the sense of a center to that continuity, like the continuity of this existence is happening to me, I'm experiencing a, a continuity of my existence, right? So that's our relative conventional reality. You know, it's impermanence often seems like a heavy trip. There's this phrase in the Dhammapada, the world is shrouded in darkness, it's constantly, it's continuously consumed. What's the use of indulgence and merrymaking? Why don't you seek out the light? The world is shrouded in darkness. It's continuously consumed. What's the use of indulgence and merrymaking? Why don't you seek out the light? So I thought tonight it might be nice to talk about the joy and the freedom, you know, in trusting impermanence that there's something positive that comes out of it. And there's real, there's really no way to be intimate. There's no way to come alive and be free without befriending impermanence. Because the alternative, like to, the not understanding impermanence, the not being awake to impermanence, means that we're, the mind or the heart is working hard to be disconnected because we've been conditioned to be afraid of it. So it's okay, you know, as you do your own practice and contemplations, it's okay at times for fear to arise because there really, there is an appropriate grieving. Just because the mind or the heart is releasing or letting go of delusion, the attachment to delusion is real. It's as real as anything is. So the letting go of that idea of permanence, the attachment to continuity, that's like a, a real loss, as much of a loss as anything. And in a way, all our other losses, like the loss of a relationship or a parent or the loss of our health, or, is just uh, <clears throat> the pain of that, the poignancy of that, is really the uh, uh, some reflection of the attack on our dependence on continuity. That's the sort of conventional mind being identified or caught or holding tight to some thread, some idea of continuity applying to me gets threatened by loss. And so we often have a negative idea around impermanence. Yeah, very. I guess in my mind, I'm not sure this is right, but although I can experience impermanence, I I sense that my Buddha nature is constant. And perhaps I'm tricking myself, but it's my ace in the hole, you know? Mm-hmm. It's... Um, Well, you might be, and I think the important thing is to continue to be interested, because, you know, the Buddha teaches and our practice reveals the unconditioned, 
which is constant and is not dukkha, is not stressful, but is also not self. So there is, whether you want to call it Buddha nature or or how, as the Buddha referred to it, the unconditioned, the unborn, the unformed, there is this, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And in a sense, in a sense, it's an ace in the hole, you know, a refuge, but it's not self. And the thing is, the it's important that the not-self get revealed. So as I was saying in response to Louise's comment, this, these contemplations are undertaken for a particular pers- uh, purpose, which is initially to see that our conditioned experience is changing, unsatisfying, and not-self. And then as the heart, as the mind has begins to change or transform its relationship to our ordinary conditioned reality, you know, the body mind, the experience of the body mind, where now there's less clinging attachment because we we have been contemplating its changing nature, its unsatisfying nature, its not self nature. So now we're just less attached to our lives. We're there, we're right in the middle, because not attachment actually brings us more into life. It's attachment that makes us want to get out of here. You know, get me to a cave get me on a retreat, you know, get me out of the city. That's all coming from attachment. That's not coming from freedom from attachment. So more and more uh, freedom from attachment, more engagement, more presence in life. And then that in that place of being sort of engaged and not attached, then, then what becomes apparent is this freedom. Maybe that's what you're referring to, the freedom of non-attachment. Uh, the freedom of the unconditioned, and then, then that's that's contemplated until it's realized that that's not self, and that really sets it free in a way, because initially, as we as we begin to intuit, like maybe you're doing, the unconditioned, as we begin to intuit the unconditioned, unavoidably, the habits of taking things personally, because we're so in the habit of taking the conditional reality personally, as we intuit the unconditioned, we're going to take that personally too. And we're going to basically create a Buddhist equivalent of heaven. Like, I can let go of this conditioned world because I have this ace in the hole, the unconditioned. But that ace in the hole doesn't doesn't refer to anybody or belong to anybody. And that's it's not really useful until that part's realized as well. But that's okay. So initially... There is this intuition of the unconditioned, the sort of inherent peace of the mind, let's call it. Um, but we just have to remember, it's good to get this set of teachings that I'm saying right now, that that as we can, we want to continue to contemplate it, especially as we have less and less attachment with the sort of more ordinary things that we're attached to, like our body and our career and what people think about us and our health and you know those sorts of things then more and more we want to contemplate the sense of freedom, the freedom from attachment, and to see that that too is not personal. It doesn't belong to anybody. And then all of a sudden, then what begins to lift, at least at moments, and then pre- presumably with full enlightenment completely, what lifts is the neurotic sense of somebody who has to be free, who wants to be free, 
who's practicing in order to be free. And that's that's a much more profound liberation than just living, like, initially just learning to live with less attachment is great. I mean, it's really a profound spiritual healing. And every little way we learn that we don't have to hold so tight in life is great. But then that whole pursuit of not holding so tight in life is itself a burden. And to see that that freedom and the pursuit of freedom isn't personal, that's that's a whole, like, uh, another uh, sort of more profound level of freedom. And that's really that understanding that the unconditioned isn't personal. It may be constant, and it may be completely free of dukkha, peaceful, and and an in an unobstructed way, uh, a stainless way, the peace is stainless. You can't, you can't kind of blow it or ruin it. But it's not self. And that's really interesting to read about the different saints, you know, uh, kind of working with that deeper insight where they have this profound, cultivated profound non-attachment and freedom and engagement and intimacy with the world but, they, but there's a subtle, or not so subtle, but often a very subtle identification with the freedom, with the beauty of the heart, with the beauty of the mind, the mind that's not attached, that is kind and wise. And then seeing that that, that, that identification with the freedom, with the beauty of the heart, is itself the absence of freedom. You know, and then the... the the final liberation of non-attachment to non-attachment <laughs> to the freedom. Yeah. This might be what you were just saying, but what I notice with when I'm experiencing continuity is it's in tandem with boundaries <laughs> and what's familiar to me and just replaying the same old things. And then when I experience moments of boundlessness, no boundaries. There's no need for continuity. It's just there's no interest and there's no need for it. And it's like fresh. I'm not replaying the same old yeah. stuff anymore. And, and there's no continuity. There's no need. It, it just strikes me as there's just no need for it. But the boundary thing seems to be the difference. When there's boundaries, when there's no boundaries. Yeah, but what what do you mean by when there's boundaries, when there's no Like when there's fear... And when there's no fear? Yeah, when there's when there's a, a need to label, a need to know yeah. what's... Ha- a need to observe versus a need to not even... Right. And do you see how that's possible right now? Like, we're all in this room, and we impose continuity. Like, when I see somebody, Gabe, sitting there, you know, in the perception of Gabe, in the memory that comes with that perception, I'm imposing continuity... And that continuity is like the thread that sews all this conceptual reality together, and we keep imposing it. But we don't have to. We can sort of drop drop into the unformed. But it's scary initially because it's so unfamiliar. Like it'd be so interesting to go home tonight when you're walking into your apartment or house, you know, to just notice how you want to impose continuity. This is the house I walked into last night. This is the house I walked out of this morning. But it, in a way, it's not. Only in our minds, in our conceptual minds, is it the same house. 
because we've imposed that reality. This moment has nothing to do with the past. It is not the past. All those other times you've been at common ground here in this room like this has nothing, I mean, it's related in terms of continuity, but that past is not here. This is something completely different. And same thing when we walk home tonight. It's radically different. And that's like that moment by moment. And when your hair starts to rise, then you know you're getting close to this perception because it's so riveting to begin to see this. And sometimes really tremendous fear and sometimes tremendous energy, uh, lightness and joy even, will come from this. Yeah, Haya, did you have a comment? Well, I was just thinking, as you're talking about, you know, each, you know, yes, this movement is, this, you know, we've been here one time before, we've been here now, it's different each time. I'm even thinking every time we sit, for me, it is different. Like, I'm thinking about yesterday, sit, yesterday morning, and today is totally a different kind of sit, and I had to let, you know, go. Today my mind was playing all this stuff, it was running around, it was having lots of fun, and it was difficult to, to settle, but accept, accepting that, okay, that's how it is right now, seemed easier to handle knowing that it's, it, it isn't permanent, you know, it felt like, okay, so this is how it is today, it may be different the next time, and it was different the last time, so for me that actually helped in thinking about impermanence. Yeah, yeah. And again, going back to what Rebecca was saying about how fear, or this, she called it making boundaries, you know, that, that's what draws the mind back to its dependence on continuity and conceptualizing thinking that comes out of its, its sense of dependence, security arising from the continuity of the stories or the ideas that we have about reality. So I, I thought it would be nice to, to look a little bit about the, uh, the joy that comes, and maybe somebody is willing to, there's a short section in Thich Nhat Hanh's book, The Heart of the Buddhist Teachings, it's just his collection of sort of coming out of the Pali Canon, the basic lists, uh, basic models that the Buddha used to teach, but he has a nice section that I want to cover now, and if somebody's willing to scan that, we'll get everyone a copy of it, so if you're interested, come up afterward, and uh, we'll get that out to people. But uh, I think it was part of that was once reprinted in the Inquiring Mind, and the title for that section was called Long Live Impermanence. Yeah, Ye Ra Ra Impermanence, instead of, oh no, not impermanence. Because that's, you know, we, we think we should be frightened about impermanence, but impermanence isn't really a problem. And this is a section I wanted to read from the uh, Mind in the Way before I get to Thich Nhat Hanh's article. Um, and this is Ajahn Sushito introducing Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Mind in the Way. And I think I did read about uh, Ajahn Chah's quote about do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you get a little freedom. You let go a lot, you get a lot of freedom. And then he goes on and says, an accomplished forest monk is an inspiration to others because he shows that such struggles do not produce rigid zealotry or cold-heartedness. One cause for faith to arise in the Buddha way is the demeanor of the practitioners, you know, the monks and nuns, who live an austere life and yet are described in the suttas as 
smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, plainly delighting, their faculties fresh, unexcited, unruffled, living by what others give, dwelling with minds like wild deer. And sometimes, you know, when we are looking at wild animals, you know, you see this, it's, it's hard to describe because we're attracted to it. So on an intuitive level, we're definitely attracted. But we don't really know what it is that we're attracted to. But as I've sort of contemplated this, it's this uh, immediacy. And part of that immediacy is that, you know, organiz- organisms that aren't uh, so burdened by the conceptualizing process, they're, they're so moment to moment that we can, even in our relative way, we can kind of discern how, like, the inconstancy, like even though there's a continuity in the deer's activity, you can kind of see the sort of moments, yeah, like, and in a way you can almost recognize the, the uh, separation, like the distinctness, uniqueness of each moment of existence for the deer. And it's really, it's sort of enlivening to see it because it's like so much in nature, what we see, we can't help recognizing here. Like what we see there, we can't help recognizing here. Same if you see a really angry person, we tend to sympathetically vibrate. So when we recognize that immediacy and the, the impermanent immediacy of nature, even like with the fluttering of leaves, or whatever it is that you open to with in that way, we begin to, the whole world begins to open up. And generally, then we want to write a poem about it, right? Because it's a little bit more solid and real. So we pull out the notebook or we call our friend, hey, it's such a beautiful place here, you know? Grab a bottle of wine and join me. Or something like that. It's not that that's bad, of course, but it's like interesting that we, uh, that we haven't cultivated the power of contemplation, like, to really let the world fall apart, to let the conceptualizing world fall apart, not to be afraid of that, to realize that it's not dangerous. So now I'll get to Ajahn, I mean, to Thich Nhat Hanh's, uh section that he wrote about impermanence. It's in that book. And the chapter in the book, the chapter is the Three Dharma Seals, chapter 18. And here he says, The Buddha taught that everything is impermanent, flowers, tables, mountains, Political regimes, bodies, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. We cannot find anything that is permanent. Flowers decompose, but knowing this does not prevent us from loving flowers. In fact, we are able to love them more because we know how to treasure them while they're still alive. If we learn to look at a flower in a way that impermanence is revealed to us, when it dies, we will not suffer because we never expected it to be other than what it is. We never expected it to be something permanent. Impermanence is more than an idea. It is a practice to help us touch reality. And this is really the seed of this liberation, the liberating quality of impermanence. It's the intimacy, and that intimacy with reality is healing. It heals the disconnection and the delusion. Like when we are present with that deer, Kamala was present with that flower, it healed the sort of seeming 
constancy, but what was actually a, a spiritual illness, you know, a disconnection, a separation, using the boundaries that we create to imprison ourselves. In that article that I gave you, the link for um, Carol Wilson's article on impermanence, forget the title, anybody remember the title? What's the problem with impermanence? Something like that, maybe? But anyway, she talks about being like this image of a prison. You know, we're in a prison, and all we can see, think to do is to keep rearranging the furniture. It doesn't occur to us that we can actually walk out of the prison. Like, how can we make this prison, this imprisonment, palatable? How can we make it nicer? As opposed to stepping out of the prison. So, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, um, these three seals or the three characteristics of existence, they're not really different things. So, stepping into reality or opening to reality, resting in reality the way it is, or the Dhamma the way that it is, you know, the gateway might be through noticing, recognizing, trusting the impermanent, changing nature of phenomena. It might be from trusting the unsatisfying nature of phenomena, like when I'm relating to my mind-body experience from my conventional perspective, nothing is satisfying, which means I'm constantly trying to satisfy myself, always, fiddling with my body, fiddling with my thoughts, fiddling with my judgments about the rest of you, my judgments about myself, thinking about the future, but it's always about trying to be happy, trying to be satisfied. Never able to be satisfied. And then eventually we get exhausted and we fall asleep for a while. And then we start again. And uh, so that we can contemplate the unsatisfying nature, how dissatisfied we are with experience. We can contemplate that, or we can contemplate the impersonal nature. But all three ways we're just contemplating nature, or the way it is, three characteristics. Now the question is, you know, what's actually the problem with impermanence? Why isn't it immediately joyful? Thich Han says, when we look deeply into impermanence, we see that things change because causes and conditions change. When we look deeply into non-self, we see that the existence of every single thing is possible only because of the existence of everything else. We see that everything else is the cause and condition for its existence. We see that everything else is in it. And this is that experience that I was referring to in my own walking practice some years ago at IMS there in the fall. It's like that's the thing that also gets revealed, not just that this reality is distinct from this reality, but that this reality is just this one thing. It has a wholeness. It's like uh, there are no boundaries. It's complete. You can't pick things apart. So in a way, it's, uh, yeah, so it's that wholeness, and that's what they're referring to here, what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is referring to. We see that everything else is in it. And then the next paragraph, from the point of view of time, we say impermanence. 
From the point of view of space, we say non-self, which just in terms of the term space, you could say instead of non-self, no center. Right? So in terms of time, we say impermanence, like there's no, there's no end point, just process, just change. In terms of space, we say no center, no self, in terms of our experience of Dhamma, the way it is. And he goes on, he says, things cannot remain themselves for two consecutive moments. Therefore, there is nothing that can be called a permanent self. Before you entered this room, you were different, physically and mentally. Looking deeply at impermanence, you see non-self. Looking deeply at non-self, you see impermanence. We cannot say, I can't, I can accept impermanence, but non-self is too difficult. They're the same. And he goes on, Without impermanence, life could not be. Without impermanence, your daughter could not grow up into a beautiful young lady. Without impermanence, oppressive political regimes would never change. We think impermanence makes us suffer. The Buddha gave us an example of a dog that was hit by a stone and got angry at the stone. It's not impermanence that makes us suffer. What makes us suffer is wanting things to be permanent when they are not. Now that's interesting, and we can really use this around experiences of loss, for example. Is it the loss that is painful? Or is it the not wanting things to change, not wanting this thing in particular to, to end that's painful? Yeah, Liz. Well, I have an example in, in my life. Um, I'm the sixth of seven children, and my parents have been dead for you know many years, 15 20 years. Um, my oldest sister has also passed away. So anyway, I spoke with my oldest brother over the weekend. He is going to be 60 this year, so we're all in our 50s now. And um, one of my brothers had last Thanksgiving stopped breathing for 15 minutes and uh, almost died, obviously. You know, he had arrhythmia and Luckily, was with people who knew CPR, etc. So, anyway, so what I've noticed is that the relationship with my brothers and sisters and I have has really, really changed. We are so patient. We enjoy speaking to each other now. We're very patient. You know, it's like I sort of remember my mom's relationship with her siblings and. You know, how they really care about each other and like each other and supporting each other. And it's sort of like this is happening now with my siblings and I. I mean, believe me, with my brother and I, who, you know, we used to fight it out just all the time. So uh, I've really noticed how the fact that, you know, we're, we're older now and, you know, the end is in sight. Yeah. And uh, it's really softness and mellowness. It's just lovely. Really nice. Yeah. And you see how it can really change. I mean, we could even, what Liz said about her relationship with her siblings can be true with something that for a lot of us is really heavy, like hearing a lot about global warming and whatever we imagine that's going to lead to. And, uh, but that could have the same effect on how we relate to the earth and the beauty of the earth and the nuances of nature, you know, we can have this profound poignancy and appreciation knowing that things do profoundly change. 
And even with really ordinary things like we have a cup we like to drink our tea or coffee in, and just knowing that it's inevitable that this cup will break. And so every time we use it, it will have a different relationship, knowing that it won't be long before it will be other than what it is. And same with our bodies. Like, I never really had knee or hip pain until the last year, and now I have pretty regular knee and hip pain when I'm sitting. And, uh, you know, it's just like, I wish I had appreciated <laughs> all those days, you know, where I was, my body, my lower body at least, was pretty resilient. But it I mean, could still change. It could still change, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm assuming it will change. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but just appreciating the health that we have, or Thich Nhat Hanh somewhere says, you know, appreciating the non-toothaches, too. Because knowing that things can change, and maybe the teeth won't always be so healthy, or, or whatever, and it really, you see how a lot of the beautiful qualities that we see in ourselves and other people really come from a more immediate experience of impermanence, like Liz had at Thanksgiving dinner. You can imagine how much that will change. I'm in the middle of that same kind of thing with my dad's health. He's got a serious medical crisis going on, and just how poignant and beautiful. I mean, it's interesting how people come up, you know, and they're, they want to be really supportive, but the fact is, I mean, as much as my dad's in a difficult place, the fact is, it's really beautiful being together. Always. I mean, it just consistently feels really nice to be together. And I wish my dad didn't have cancer, and I, it would be great if he could recover and be back at home and be independent again. Um, but I don't want to discount the fact that it's really beautiful being together. And, uh, and also, you know, it seems a little strange to say it, but I'm not surprised that an 85, almost 86-year-old man gets sick. You know, it, it doesn't, there's no shock in me. I'm not shocked by that, um, especially someone like him who had so much health through almost all of his life um, to finally, you know, your card comes up and then there's this thing you got to deal with and it may kill him and it may not, and, you know, all that uncertainty. But it's interesting, like, because in our culture, you know, it's, we're supposed to be upset by impermanence, change. But we're really, in practice, in Dharma practice, we're really learning to trust our actual experience, not what the cultural expectation is. And, uh, you know, we have to play along a little bit because people might not understand if all we said is, you know, it's just so great being together. I'm really appreciating being together, you know. Um, yeah. Let me just read a little bit more. I was almost done here from this article, Thich Han. So he, he had just said, what makes us suffer is wanting things to be permanent when they're not. And we can reflect, and this is something it would be nice to bring up in your small groups next week, is like, like really asking yourself honestly that question when you find yourself suffering or on impermanence, is it actually because things are impermanent or because you don't want things to be impermanent? And it sounds like, well, that's the same thing. But it isn't. That's a choice. Not wanting things to be impermanent when they are. Not wanting things to be the way that they are is a choice. We can, we have this choice to come into alignment with the way things are. Like, what would that look like to radically accept change? That anything could happen anytime. That this world, what we call the world, is unfolding lawfully, 
interdependently, but ungovernable, not governed by anybody really. And so then the question is, resisting it, which is rope burn, or giving ourselves to life, the changing nature of life. And he ends this section, we need, we need to learn to appreciate the value of impermanence. If we are in good health and are aware of impermanence, we will take good care of ourselves. When we know that the person we love is impermanent, we will share, cherish our beloved all the more. Impermanence teaches us to respect and value every moment and all the precious things around us and inside us, inside of us. When we practice mindfulness of impermanence, we become fresher and more loving. Then a little later, impermanence is what makes transformation possible. We should learn to say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, we can change suffering into joy. And then like Liz says, he mentions, this is a famous comment by Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, when, when you're having an argument with your siblings or your lover or whatever, you just think, remind yourself, well, what are we going to look like in 300 years? And it really changes, like, the fact that we all know it's just a matter of time before some of us start to die, and in 30 years, very few of us will be around, and in 50, 70, 80 years, probably nobody will be around, maybe some of the young ones, if you're, you know, if they learn how to make new organs, and <laughs> like Legos, you just go in and get new pieces. You know, one of these these things about impermanence is that we feel like uh, it's lurking out there as the devil or the evil one, you know, and it's just going to surprise us. And this is the thing about things that scare us, and this is an ancient archetype you find in so many different wisdom, spiritual traditions of befriending the evil one, you know, befriending the shadow. You, you have to bring it in. You know, even religions that tend to sort of have a strong sense of good and evil, like separation. But, you know, like, uh, I remember a Jungian, a Jungian analysis of the Christ on the cross. You know, and the fact that, like, isn't that an amazing integration that here we have the Savior being depicted, being tortured, you know, in the most, you know, terrible way. And how that sort of shadow, like what we're afraid of, is what we revere, you know. And there in those huge cathedrals, we have this person. So there's, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying you should appreciate that particular image or way of uh, those people practice, people like that practice. But just this, uh, this very conscious integration, you know, the practice is a very wise, conscious integration of what we run from. And impermanence is that. And so it's such a relief not to have anything that we're hiding from. No surprises. Like, can you imagine living our life where some terrible accident could happen on the way home and it would, there would be nothing in the mind that would be surprised by it? Something really wonderful after years of being a single person, you know, and there walk some person walks into our life and this person is just the person we were looking for, you know, that we're just immediately trustworthy of and so much joy and appreciation and you know, 
this well-being comes from that. And not be surprised by the good and the difficult things that come our way. And to realize that, you know, opening to impermanence, we're just opening to what's always been true. It's not like, oh, i got to really let this in. It's already in. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like we've never not been right in the middle of this, whatever this is, this Dhamma, the way it is. It's always been this way. It can't ever be the, but this way. So what, this uh, movement towards alignment or integration isn't something new. It's just a, a recognition of what's always been true. And uh, sort of uh, learning to uh, appreciate how liberating it is, how much easy it is to appreciate what's beautiful, to be patient with what's difficult. So I want to end by reading um, a couple more things. I uh, put up on the website, I won't be able to read it tonight, but it's a little long, I'll read something else, but there's this article, and this I think will resonate with a lot of you, and it's just about <coughs> shifting our perspective. It's called A Walk in the Woods by Kanti Palo, and it's just this monk from Thailand, I don't know if he's a Western monk or not, um, just walking around his kuti, probably his cabin, wherever he, he was living in, at the monastery, and then just describing the scene in terms of impermanence. And this is amazing when you go out in nature, you know, real nature, you know, where people are picking up the debris. It's like everything is falling apart, and it's like you can shift back and forth. Some of you maybe were at Ajahn Chanako's talk on Friday night where he talked about the beauty of cessation. Normally, when we're out in nature, we like the arising, you know, the blooming of a flower. We don't like the falling of a twig, and there it is, you know, or the, the rotting of a branch, or the, you know, the worms eating, the caterpillars eating the leaves of the tree or the plant. We like the sort of the new leaves, you know, that the greenness of a new leaf. So radiant, really. It seems like it's like lit from within. And that, we like that stuff. We like babies. We like the arising of phenomena. And we're not so interested in the cessation of phenomena. And so, just, uh, so I, I recommend that you read that and then do that contemplation at home, like the dissolution, the, like how things tend to fall apart at home. One of the things I see where my dad is staying at this transitional care unit, which is mostly like, uh, Probably 80% of this facility is a nursing home, and then 20% is a rehab center where my dad is. And, you know, it's it's a decent place. People are really good. They're really nice. But, you know, everything's a little dingy. I mean, it's hard when you, you know, when there's a lot of the cessation part of reality going on and incontinence and... Uh, the, the falling apart of people's cognitive abilities and all the other things that go, and let alone a building, and a building that tends to fall apart unless you just pour a lot of money in it. And even when you do that with older buildings, they, they have that look of being an older building and seeing the wheelchairs that have been used for a while now. And, and it's just interesting. Now, can you see, could I in that setting see the arising, see the birthing, like the, the different perspective, 
the smile arising in somebody's face, you know, the nice sound or the whatever arising, or just the mind and then the resistance to the cessation, the falling apart, the disintegration aspect of experience. So we want to be able to do both. Depending on what our tendency is, we want to especially emphasize the other in terms of our practice this course so that we're really familiar with the whole arising and the ceasing, not having a preference. You know, the grumpy ones in the room, we tend to, oh yeah, this course is already done. I don't even need to show up next Monday because it's almost done anyway. I mean, it's already week three. <laughs> you know, and it's like, we, like why bother to work out? I, I feel that a lot. It's amazing. I'm only 55, and it's like, if I, I'm going to have to work out again. You know, it's like, we don't mind doing some bit if I got to keep doing it. It's like, oh, could just, I've always had uh, an attraction to cessation, like, just get me to the end. <laughs> and Wynne is a little bit the other way, you know, she's much more interested in the, in the arising. I can get there too. I mean, I, I can be deluded by both, for sure, but more my habit is to sort of be interested in the cessation of things, like getting something done so I can be done, just wanting to be good in this life so I can get through it without any big mistakes. <laughs> and that, that sort of is missing, like, the joy part of life, you know, like really letting in the beauty, really letting in the joy, and not forgetting the cessation. So take a look at that article, A Walk in the Woods, and then just, because he mentions at the end about being able to see both. I remember uh, this time in, in my little cabin when I was practicing in Burma, and I think some of you have heard this story, you know, there's this huge spider, in my, and, uh, you know, I was practicing as a monk, so I couldn't just get, not that I would anyway, but, so, but it took me forever without harming it to get it out of the room, you know, just sort of coaxing it, coaxing it, coaxing it. And just the, just dealing with the fear and the just like trying to practice being mindful with my body and with the fear and, and then just the irritation of like the spider not getting the message that I'm not, I don't want to hurt you, but you're not going to stay in this room. <laughs> and then, and so it was like a really intense experience just to sort of be in that presence and my mind was really just from all that practice, really concentrated, really present. And I, I finally got it out, and I'm not kidding, within a minute or two, because I was still out in the little walkway outside of the front door of the room, uh, a bigger spider jumped on that bigger, and that spider was like, I mean, it was a good three or four inches across. And a bigger spider jumped and killed that spider that I had worked for like 10 or 15 minutes to get out of the room. Killed it. I mean, it was just such a, a poignant thing about, like, just the nature of this world. And we, you know, living in cities, we can have real distance from the disintegration. Like, how much, this is half of nature. Disintegration, the falling apart, is half of what happens. But we don't see it that way. We're really good. I mean, we, we devoted our economy to sort of only seeing the arising, the new products. You know, and if we want, we're feeling a little down, we get a new product. Or, you know, if something's been around too long, we don't like it very much. We want something new or fresh or... So I'll just end with a short 
reading that was in this wonderful book on the three characteristics, which I'll use a little bit next week. Just a quote from the Buddha. Wherever I go, I am unafraid. Wherever I sleep, I am unalarmed. The nights and day do not burn me. I see nothing in this world that is to be lost, right? Because when we see the impermanent nature, it's not like we ever expected it to be more than what it is. So it's not like we're worried about things being lost. I see nothing in this world that is to be lost. Therefore, my heart dwells in goodwill and kindness to all beings until I fall asleep. Isn't that nice? Wherever I go, I am unafraid. Wherever I sleep, I am, un- I am unalarmed. The nights and day do not burn me. I see nothing in this world that is to be lost. Therefore, my heart dwells in goodness and kindness to all beings until I fall asleep. I fall to sleep. Maybe I'll send it off to people. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.